Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Finding Working Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are Finding Working Art Director Mike Pekovich and senior editor Matt Kenny. Now, before we get started, guys, uh, as always, I'd just like to remind folks to, uh, if you like this show, to visit our iTunes page and uh, leave a five-star rating and maybe a comment. Um, who knows, we might read your comment at the end of a future podcast. And before we dive into our questions, you two are teaching somewhere locally very soon, correct? Matt, you go first. Where are you teaching and what are you teaching and why? Okay, I'm teaching at the Connecticut Valley <laughs> School of Woodworking the weekend of September 28th and 29th or 29th and 30th. Uh, I know the 29th is definitely one of the days. And it's a Saturday, Sunday, two-day class, uh, how to make a grooving plane. Just what you've always wanted to learn how to do. That's cool. You wrote an article on that. I did write an article about that, yes. And, and so I could just read the article and make it or take this class? <laughs> but you would not get to spend an upwards of 16 hours with me in one weekend. That's true. <laughs> yeah. uh, you've never taught at Connecticut Valley before. I've never taught at Connecticut Valley. I've taught, at, uh, uh, I've taught elsewhere. And uh, so uh, why am I teaching that class, Ed? Yeah, why the heck do I want a grooving plane when I have a router? Oh, well, because they don't do the same thing, Ed. Oh, really? Correct. Oh, please enlighten me, Matt. Well, a router does edge profiling, uh, some grooving. But a grooving plane is for those guys who like to stay at their bench, keep it quiet, keep it enjoyable. Uh, don't want to use the router at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, like me, I used to be that way. Those are actually really cool. I mean... I like hand tools. I also like efficiency, and your grooving planes are really cool, but I also have a table saw blade with an eighth-inch wide yes. curve. It kind of does the same thing. That said, I've been wanting to make your grooving planes for a while because they're really cool. What I would like is a slightly wider blade, maybe like a 3 or something. I have a, qu- I have a pair that have a quarter-inch blade mm-hmm. uh, for bigger stuff, for bigger drawers. And, uh, yeah, they work really well. I think quarter-inch You've got big drawers, Matt? I've got big drawers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, and uh, but I think quarter inch, maybe three eighths, is about as wide as you could go. Because I would just think the the mass, they're pretty small planes, so yes. you get a lot of force behind a quarter inch wide cut. Yeah, the the bigger the bu- the wider the blade, the more force it takes, and the more difficult it gets to push that blade uh, through there. So I would probably quarter inch is probably the widest I would go, maybe five sixteenths. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Mike, what about you? Uh, I'm also going to be teaching in Connecticut Valley, which is up in Manchester, East Hartford. It's a really cool school. Um, I'm going to be doing a hayrake dining table, patterned after the uh, table that ran in the magazine we did a video workshop project on. And I'm always sort of faced by this. It's like, okay, we, we ran an article on it. There's an eight-page video series on it, so why take a class? Well... Uh, I mean, there's, well, this is what I've learned being an editor. I could read an article uh, and learn a lot, but you know what I, when I learn the most is when I'm in the guy's shop watching them right. work. And, they're, and I'm do, uh, first, let me, doing the photography, Mike, uh, first of all. <laughs> but uh, uh, I learned so much more in person from you. So much more I, in person from someone. I see that Matt is losing his microphone again yeah. this week, much, much like last week. It's, and it's probably because every time you flex your manly chest, it causes the spring on the microphone to pop out. Hold on, I'm going to pot you down. Um, well, uh, Mike, I kind of wanted to ask you, how many of your 23 planes are going to be using in the production of this dining table? Uh, seven. Seven. So your students are required to bring all seven planes? Um, I don't know. I, let's probably... Actually, you know what I'm teaching, unfortunately... Um, they make, Mike makes him bring I eight just like planes. Him on the I spot. know. You know the, the extra plane is for Mike. They have to get, it's a little right. tribute, a little yeah. honorarium. No, I'll pull out a little number four smoother. That travels with me wherever I go. But really when I'm, I'm teaching and demonstrating, you know what I pull out far more often the hand plane is a scraper, card scraper. Because if you're getting into hand tools, I think a card scraper is really, I think, the first thing if you're talking about surface prep and hand tools. Because uh, you can do great things with a card scraper, and the downside with a card scraper is if it's dull, it doesn't cut. Whereas a hand plane that's dull, you're going to do a whole lot of Not damage. damage. Yeah. yeah. So I recently did the Mike Pekovich card scraper sharpening technique on my card scraper. I believe I shot the video, Matt. 
How that of works? Mike. Oh, it works fantastic. It's okay. not the surface isn't as smooth as a, a sharp pan plane. Right. But uh, I've been using it to get rid of tracks uh, left over by my hand plane because right. it's not quite as sharp as it should be. You know, when the plane gets little nicks in it. Yeah. And it leaves those little tracks. Yeah, right. Did so. you follow that up with like fine sandpaper after that? Yeah. Yeah. It depends on what the part is in in. Uh, in the uh, in the piece that I'm making, right. but uh, yeah, I would follow it up with fine sandpaper. Right on. Well, right. let's uh, let's dive into the questions we have here. And the first one comes from Swift Feet via Lumberjocks, and he had written in concerning some pretty solid beginner questions. And uh, so I kind of have them broken down into bullet points. So the first one he says is, I find it difficult to choose the type of wood for a particular project or application. Why, other than looks, would you choose one wood over another or even one cut over another? Great question. I mean, the first thing that, that comes to mind is typically in a piece of furniture, we usually refer to, uh, within a piece, primary wood and secondary wood. The primary wood is the stuff you see. So you're going to choose that based on the, on the look you want for the piece. And then the secondary wood is all the stuff on the inside, drawer sides, runners, stretchers, the skeleton of the piece, where that wood, you know, it has to serve a function, um, but the species you choose has less to do with the looks than it does the actual, you know, working properties. You know, typically, I know traditionally 18th century furniture, they'll use pine as a secondary wood, which tends to be pretty soft. I think now something like soft maple, which is inexpensive, but, but is very durable, um, right. is probably a better choice for secondary woods. But Yeah, especially like, for like a drawer runner. Something yeah. that's going to see a lot of uh, use. Right. Hmm. Something that if it's a part's not going to be as as used, then you could get away with something else. Right. Something softer. Right. Yeah. And then for uh, like primary was the wood that you are going to see. Then it comes down to let's say you okay I like cherry I'm going to use cherry for a piece. Great. And then you get down to you know how's the 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 grain orientation in the particular board where it's coming from from the log. It uh, depends on how that board is going to look, whether it's a real tight grain for quarter sawn stock or that sort of cathedral pattern or plain sawn stock or somewhere in between, which is called a riff sawn stock. Right. Yeah. And uh, there's also other considerations like uh, if you're going to be bending, steam bending, then you should get air dried. Oh, right. You know, instead of kiln dried. Uh, now, what's, what's the deal behind that? It has to do with the uh, lignans in the wood right. or something. The, the kiln drying sets the lignans. And once they're set, you can't really bend the wood very well. So the, the lignans, I guess, are more elastic when they're uh, before they're air uh, with their air dried. Mm. So you can, in a sense, uh, uh, get it wet and bend it much better than you can uh, a kiln dried lumber. Sure. Um, so, well, hold on a second. Back up a second. Can you give me the breakdown on um, the when you're building, let's say, that cherry cabinet with a door? Can you give me the breakdown on what? cut of wood you're going to use where? Uh, well, some of, some of this is there's some good advice about things like door frames. Mm -hmm. Should definitely be quarter or rifts on lumber right. because it's more dimensionally stable. And so you don't have to worry about, uh, uh, say, a quarter some piece of wood, when it moves, it gets thicker or thinner, not wider. So you can make that frame and put it into the pocket and be assured that the it's going to fit the pocket throughout the year. Right. Uh, for the panel, you can use whatever you want to because the panel's movement is trapped inside the frame. But uh, we, on the same token, if you use quarter sawn stock for drawer sides, because the way it changes is mostly in its thickness, if you fit it in the winter and it's really tight with people looking for the piston fit, it's right. conceivable that in the summer its thickness will be greater and it will be stuck. Side to side, it'll be stuck. side to side instead of top to bottom. Right. Usually, right. you think of drawers, you're thinking, oh, the fit top to bottom is really critical. When really, it's that side to side. Is, the door, yeah. uh, drawer has to be fit super, super tight in order not to rack. That's how you get a smooth yes. sliding drawer. But yeah. you're right. If you had the quarter sawn stock and that wood moves even just a little bit, you're you're yes. stuck. And the cool thing about uh, grain orientation, like we were talking about. Um, grain orientation in terms of the mechanics in building correctly for movement, but also a lot of times it goes hand in hand with actually what looks good in a piece of furniture. Yes. And with a, a door frame, you'd like that nice straight grain around the frame. 
it sort of gives it some nice structure and unity visually in the panel itself. You know, if you have a nice plain sawn board with the cathedrals, that also looks nice. And also you can get boards, typically wider boards, plain sawn, you can. And, and then something like legs, you know, like a square leg, um, I like to have nice straight grain on all four sides. And the way you get that is you want to use a riffson board, which is where the grain is running diagonally. When you're looking at that end grain, it's running diagonally, which will give you straight grain on all four sides. Yeah. All right. But, uh, but when it comes to, like, making a wall cabinet, personally, uh, almost all of the lumber I'll use will be riffson cherry. And, you know, it's one, it's more stable than flat sawn, so that's something I consider. But for me, it's all about looks. I really like riffs on cherry. Uh, I like the straight grain. And when you go to quarter sawn cherry, it starts to get that weird flecking that you sometimes will see on quarter sawn maple, for example. Right. And I don't really like that fleck, but uh, riffs on doesn't have it. And so I'll use that for the case. I'll use it for just about everything. What do you... How do you even source riffs on cherry? I've never seen it sold as such. You just sort of choose your lumber accordingly? Yeah, I just, when I go to the lumber yard, I look at the end grain and I look for big, wide, flat sawn boards. Okay. Uh, and then I know I can basically uh, rip them down and use the edges. That Those are the riffs on areas. That will be yeah. the riffs on area. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a little bit of flat sawn is okay, but uh, I try to keep that. That'll end up being towards one edge of the board. Uh, but, yeah, so I look for big, wide, flat sawn stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to the next question, and that is, what are some fairly foolproof ways to finish furniture? This is a pretty broad, open-ended question, so let's, let's try and keep it concise. Okay. Step one, don't be a fool. Got it. Right, okay. <laughs> or maybe I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well... I used to have a struggle. I used to struggle with finishing, and I think I've got two. I think there's only two finishes you need to know. I think we've actually talked about this before on the podcast, maybe, but uh, I actually stole them both from Mike. Uh, one of them. I'd like them back, by the way. <laughs> uh, there's a limited quantity. Now, one of them is a shellac-based finish that I use on small stuff, and the other one is Mike's uh, Waterlocks. Just a wiping varnish. Yeah, wiping varnish. Yep. Sorry, not to uh, favor a particular brand, but I really like Waterlocks. Uh, <laughs> is the wiping varnish, which he did the the ultimate last time finish, all time greatest happy finish you'll ever need article. Right. What yeah. what issue was that in? I uh, couldn't tell you. It, it, the cover of that issue was only a few issues ago, and the cover showed you applying finish to a, an oak cabinet, right. if I remember correctly. Right. So quite lovingly. Yes. Okay. Well. That was the article's called the the last finish you'll ever need. Yeah, uh, we should we should say that shellac's the kind of thing that you you want to use you don't want to use for something that's going to get a ton of wear like a tabletop. Or, right. So that's where you want to go towards the wiping varnish. Yeah, I I, I mean Mike is uh, can talk about this too, but I use the shellac uh, based finish on boxes, mm-hmm. uh, maybe on a wall cabinet, because wall cabinets actually don't get touched a lot, just right. the drawers do, or, right. the, or the doorknob. Uh, so you could use it there. But Ed's right, where there's a, a tabletop, for example, you cannot, I would not use shellac right. for a kitchen table, for example. Yeah, actually shellac, it gets a, a bum rap. People think, oh, anything near water, it's going to, whatever, turn white. But actually shellac is tremendously durable finish. It's not great around alcohol or water, but for small stuff, it's great. I like it for small stuff because it goes on really quick. Um, but on bigger pieces, even that don't get a lot of wear, it's really hard, I think, to apply shellac like on a, on a big thing, like a big giant bookcase. I think that's more effort than it's worth. So going to a wiping varnish is cool. Yeah. Also, I like to combine the two finishes. I find that if you start a piece, even if you're going to go with a wiping varnish, if you start with a wash coat of shellac, you know, sand it nice and smooth, go with some wash coat of shellac, sand that down again, and then you put that first coat of water locks on, the build that just builds so much faster and sort mm-hmm. of like cheating the finish and um, cuts your, yeah. your finishing ha- time almost in half. Well, I was well, I was going to say that my only problem with shellac is that after I finish my first or second bottle of schnapps in the morning, I tend to start spilling, and then that messes up the shellac finish. Well, <laughs> uh, you have different problems than your furniture finishing ability, Matt. 
Yeah. Well, the next question that Swiftfeed had was, to what grid of sandpaper should I be sanding my projects? Wait, let me uh, yeah. just go back for a second. Okay. Should, should we... I mean, he asked for foolproof finishes, and we said it generically, shellac-based yes. and then wiping. Or should we give more specific... I mean, because it's a pretty specific shellac-based finish that I'm talking about. What do you like to use? And that I got from you. Uh, basically, you take, uh, like, a three-pound cut, or you t- go and buy a, a, a can of seal coat. Right. And you cut that in half, 50-50, with denatured alcohol. Right, and that's a... a De-waxed, blonde, very, very light colored yes. shellac. Yes, yeah. you could use other. Co- you could use colored shellacs as well. Yeah. What I would do actually is uh, mix it up if it's waxed and let it sit, and then the wax, oh, as I learned, sinks right to the bottom. Sinks yeah. right to the bottom, yeah. and then you can use it de-waxed. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's not just generically use sh- shellac. I, it's a specific thing that you first developed and I got from you and I've sort of gone in my own direction a little bit with it because of the way it dries quickly. It, it makes it really easy to get a mm-hmm. nice finish. And then I think we, you and I would both agree over both finishes, you want to buff them down with uh, steel wool and then put wax on right. it. Right. We're kind of finishing the finish. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 It really gives a nice luster. And we could get Mike and I could talk forever about choosing steel wool. Yes. And choosing waxes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh my god! <laughs> the whole episode, right? It's a series. <laughs> All right. So, to Swiftfeet's third point: To what grid of sandpaper should I be sanding my projects? I know right. that. Uh, do both of you use sandpaper at all? I do use yeah, sandpaper. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you do? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Not all hand planier than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it depends on. It really comes down to whether or not you're you're staining your wood and what type of finish you're using in that uh, in regard to dyeing and staining what you're looking for is not like a a perfectly smooth scratch free surface you're looking for a consistent scratch pattern something in which the the stain is especially a pigment stain it needs an irregular surface for the pigments to sort of lodge into so uh, professional finishers typically recommend sanding to 150 grit and that'll give you a nice scratch pattern to give you a consistent stain. And secondly, most fin- professional finishers are using some sort of film-forming finish, a lacquer or something. And the thicker the finish, the more the surface is really a result of the finished surface itself as opposed to the wood. So you can get by with a heavier scratch pattern. But if you're using a very, very thin finish like a wipe-on varnish or shellac or penetrating oil, you need the wood to be as smooth as possible to really build up that luster quickly. And so for there, I'd say, the minimum I ever sand to is 320. I would say often I'm going up to 600, and something like maple, really close grain, I'll sand up to 1,200 grit. I mean, there's a misnomer, people saying, oh, if you're sanding above 200, you're just burnishing the wood. It's like, no, if you have really dull sandpaper or something, you're burnishing, but you're actually refining that scratch pattern, and yeah. it does make a big difference. Uh, you can, and I do occasionally use my hand planes to get a finished surface, but typically what I'm using the hand plane for is to make sure that that surface is dead flat. Yeah, two different things, smooth and flat. Yes. Yep. And then once it's dead flat, I can very quickly work through higher grits of sandpaper. Usually I'll start at 320 after my hand plane mm-hmm. and go up for 600 grit on a small, like a small box. Uh, you really want to be perfectly smooth because when you do pick it up, there's really no room for uh, for uh, rough spots because yes. people will find it with their fingers. Um, so uh, the hand planes really are making things flat. And once it's flat, it's really easy to sand. Right. There's that, again, that, um, that notion that you're defiling a hand plane surface by sanding it afterwards. But you're not. No. It's, uh, you're, you know, if you're finding, sanding with uh, fine sandpaper, you're not taking that flat surface out of flat or anything. Okay. Um, well, on to Swiftfeet's final point, and that is, I get lost on when to use pocket screws versus why you would want mortise and tenon joinery, or half-blind dovetails versus through dovetails. So wow. let's break this down, part A, part B. Part A, pocket screws versus yeah. mortise and tenon joinery. Each have appropriate uses. Right. So break it down, what's the appropriate use for pocket screw technology or biscuits, things like that? Want the snarky answer? Or the helpful answer. No, no, I mean, like a helpful, <laughs> what's, what's the, the nuts and bolts of this? Where do you want to use pocket screws and, and biscuit joints, or where is it appropriate, where is it not? Yeah, well, appropriate and inappropriate is probably not, it's probably, that's probably more of a, 
uh, an arguable point because mm-hmm. uh, some guys certainly think that biscuits are appropriate in fine furniture. So, and that's more of a uh, that's more personal. Well, uh, I don't. I think appropriate is you know it's the right joint for the job. I don't care what it is or what machine. Yeah, makes all right, it. we'll put it that way. Right. But, yeah. uh, pocket screws. I don't find pocket screws to be um, tremendously strong. Uh, I like them if I'm doing built-ins with face frames. I'll use those to join the face frames, keep them flat. They do a good job of keeping the parts registered, but I plan really the face frame, it's going to get a strength once it's attached to the cabinet. Mm-hmm. So in that case, I think pocket screws are appropriate because they're doing their job of keeping the parts aligned, but then I'm going to back that up by gluing or nailing and gluing to the case where I'm going to get the strength I need. So any other application... Um, you know, I certainly wouldn't use pocket screws for like a leg to apron joinery on a table right. or something like that where I really need that strength. Not, so in other words, we're not, you don't want to use them uh, as the sole provider of structural strength. Right. You know, like you could put together a, a, a kitchen cabinet box with, uh, dr- with pocket screws because not only are you going to put a face frame on it, and those two will sort of reinforce you each other. You've probably got a rabbited back. You've got a, a back too. that you're probably going to glue in or screw in, and right. that gives a lot of rigidity and strength. So the combination, but, yeah, like Mike said, definitely uh, you wouldn't want to use it for a table leg joint. Uh, you know, I don't think I would make a display cabinet with pocket right. screws. Uh, but, uh, it's, Mike said, it's more of a, a structural issue. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Now- Same goes for biscuits, too. Oh, yeah. I just was using some biscuits today. Part B, um, and save your arguments for the future segment. You know what I'm talking (laughs) about. But part B of this point was when to use half-blind dovetails versus through dovetails. For us, we take it for granted. We we know this like that. But break it down for somebody who's not as... Think it's when you want them to show or you don't want them to show. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's not... The traditional place for half-blind dovetails is a drawer front. Right. Some case pieces mm-hmm. will do it. And then I think often then that the, the tail part gets covered up with some molding. That's, uh, right. that, that's sort of like a period furniture thing. Yeah, I mean, you could use half-blind if you're maybe attaching a subtop to a case yep. with half-blind dovetails so they're not exposed on the side. But mm-hmm. what's, what's funny is sort of how dovetails have taken on a different meaning and connotation today than they did 200 years ago. Right. And for period furniture makers, a, a dovetail joint, it was just a, it was a workman joint. It was really good because it provided great mechanical strength in one direction. And it prevented cupping in casework and it prevented drawer fronts from popping off drawers. But it wasn't seen as a decorative joint. They tried to right. hide it as much as possible, whereas now I think the dovetail is sort of the hallmark of what we'd consider handcrafted yeah. you know, it's craftsmanship. Yeah, it's an elegant joint. It's sure. a d- decorative joint. It's very pretty. Yeah. The, interestingly, I mean, I, I think that, you know, by and large, woodworkers get too wound up with dovetailing. And it's sort of an overrated joint because you can make beautiful furniture without a single dovetail in it. Yes. And, I mean, a good example mm-hmm. of that is Krinov. You know, all of the casework is, pr- I think it's all doweled together. The master of the dowel joint. That's yeah. right. You know, and mm-hmm. he would do dovetails, I guess, on drawers. Um, but uh, I've seen him there. But all the cases uh, are doweled together, and that's perfectly strong right. for okay. uh, a cabinet, a little display cabinet like he made. So, yep. All right. Well, it was an appropriate question from Swifty because this is going to lead us into our first segment of the day. Um, which is pins versus tails. And for those of you who don't know, pins versus tails is sort of like our crossfire uh, section. So here is the question I pose to you both. Why even bother with half-blind dovetails? Uh, You both come down on two different sides of the argument. Um, I'm now wearing my plaid suit jacket a la John McLaughlin on crossfire. Um, No, the McLaughlin group, sorry. Um, so let's start with Mike. You, you probably have the more conventional feeling about this. Uh, what are your feelings on half-blind dovetails? Um, it's a wonderful joint. You use it where you need it. I use them on drawer fronts almost exclusively because I don't want the, uh, the ends of the dovetails showing on the face of the drawers. So I use them in a lot of case construction where I don't want the dovetails to show up. Um, I think where what, um, 
we're talking about here a little bit is Matt has a newfangled version, a, um, a faux half-blind dovetail, <gasps> if you will, a, right. a bit of a cheater's method to get something that resembles a half-blind Don't dovetail. Don't give it away. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if we're really talking, we're talking about getting the same look, one, Matt will tell it. Actually, I'm, I'm being a bit snarky. When in actuality, the reason I uh, cut true half-blind dovetails is not so much because um, of anything about being a purist, but I think it's, it's actually the fastest and most efficient way to get the joint as opposed to the technique that Matt is going uh. to describe. <laughs> I think there's a bit of a false savings in a, in a false sense of um, economy in what Matt does, but I'll leave that to him to explain and defend his technique. Yes. Matt? I just want to preface this. This is controversial. Those of you listening at home with young children, uh, you might want to ask them to leave the room. Matt, I give you the microphone. Your position on half-blind dovetail joinery. Right. So first I, I cut a rabbit in the drawer front. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then I pin-nail the side in, and I paint. No. Uh, <laughs> so what I do is, uh, for, let's say, a drawer front, which is probably the only place I would use a half-blind dovetail. Okay. I just I don't make the type of furniture where uh, you would do a half-blind in case. Sure, drawer. so we're not talking case construction. Yeah, we're talking drawers right. here. Uh, so I just cut through dovetails at all four corners, and then I glue on typically about an eighth of an inch thick false front. And that becomes the drawer front, and it hides the dovetails from the front and also creates that half-blind look. Lame. <laughs> now, the reason I got into... That was in- Ed, not me. Yeah. I know that, yeah. The I'm reason I got into that is really not... It really doesn't have anything to do with the time that it takes to cut a half-blind dovetail, which, you know, takes forever. But uh, because it's more about drawer fronts for me. So I have a lot of, for example, really nice old spruce that I got from the uh, the uh, the studs in my house. Oh yeah, <laughs> your Home Depot wood. When, when I did some or, demos, uh, yes. <laughs> some demolition construction wood. And I only have a limited amount of that, so I like to resaw it to get these very thin drawer fronts. I get the look of that without wasting a lot of that material. And I, now I do that a lot. I pretty, pretty much make all my drawers that way. And it allows me to control the look of the drawer front, say, in a stack of drawers, really tightly. So you can take the same board, resaw it thin, and get basically multiple drawer fronts yes. from the same board. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. So what are you using uh, when you do this? The, uh, the drawer front, are you just using the same stock as your sides? Or are you trying to match that sort of that interior drawer front with your veneer, face veneer that you're gluing to it so it looks like a solid drawer? Well, it depends. Uh, well, it doesn't depend. I pretty much use Riftson or Cortison Cherry for that regardless of what I'm going to be gluing okay. onto it. And what about your sides? The sides are whatever secondary wood I'm using for that project. Okay. Uh, it's either, for me, that's typically hard maple or eastern white pine. Okay. But you go with the cherry, why, just for aesthetics? Uh, well, I, yeah, for aesthetics, it matches pretty, usually will match the rest of the case that way. Okay. Uh, it's what I, uh, I have a lot of it around the shop, so it's something that's easy to use because of that reason. Um, cherry stable, uh, it's, a, it's a good stable hardwood, and it's easy to work, so hand planing it is easy, uh, cutting and cleaning and paring in it is easy. So uh, there's a lot of workability. There's some workability issues there. And then uh, usually the color of the cherry complements whatever I'm gluing down onto the front of it. So whether that's the spruce, it complements the spruce. Right. Uh, if it's more cherry, then obviously it complements the cherry uh, and other, whatever else I might be using. So I'm guessing you're, you make a dovetail drawer box. Mm-hmm. You glue on the front. It's slightly oversized. Slightly oversized, then yes. Do you, are you using a flush trim bed or just a hand plane to then bring that down to size? I normally use a hand plane because it's really close okay. uh, oversized. Because what's, a, what's a flush trim bit? Flush trim. It's <laughs> what I use for shaving. <laughs> <laughs> because let's say, like, uh, uh, I made a big uh, bow front drawer, a bow front cabinet for my wife, and it had a bank of drawers on the inside, like 17 drawers. 
And so to make the veneers for that, I resawed some nice tight grain spruce and I glued it up into a big sheet. And then I cut it up, ripped it up into the sizes I needed for the drawer fronts. Oh, cool. And so when I do that, I'm trying to conserve the grain match as well as I can. So right. I'm not really cutting these drawer fronts out over tremendously oversized. Right. So it's it's a delicate operation there. But if you were just to do it with a large, you could do it with larger pieces and flush trim it down. Oh, cool. Yeah. But then once I did it, I was like, this is so much faster. The actual mechanics of cutting the dovetails, I'll never go back to half blinds. Really? Yeah. Um, I actually have done it. Really? Yeah. On a couple occasions, and it does seem like, oh, I'm going to be saving a lot of time doing this. But I find that... um, what I'm doing, if I'm doing, let's say, just like one drawer, then it's just like, well, I'll just knock this out. I'm not going to go through the trouble of doing this, milling up the second stock, glue the thing on, wait for it to dry, take it off, flush trim it. And then if I'm doing a lot of drawers, typically I'll set up a router with a fence to route out the majority of my uh, the uh, sockets for the half-blind dovetail. Sure. So that gives me my baseline and also the bottom of the joint, the shoulder and the bottom of the joint, I have a little chisel just to clean up the waist in the corner. Yeah. And I'm done. So it's sort of like every time I go to New York, you know, every time I drive, I say, forget that, I'm going to take the train. Every time I take the train, I say, forget it, I'm going to drive. But Yeah, but when I, did, I started to do my through dovetails now, more, most often this is how I do it. I do the, pit, the tails at the bandsaw. Huh? Get rid of most of the waste with the bandsaw blade. Got to get your table saw blade. Get that. Yeah, nine and a half to that would be really fast. Uh, and I clean that up really quick, and then I route. I hold the board, the pin board vertically, and I route out the waste between the pins. And right. you can basically get right to the line. And it takes me two seconds to clean up the pins and get the joint together. Right. Uh, I mean, I still love hand cutting dovetails, but. I often just don't have the time. I, I've got to get stuff made fast. Right. All right. Fair enough. Uh, well, the next question came from George DiGattiano, and George wrote in, I hope you'll discuss the pros and cons of various vices and configurations for a workbench. Uh, this is obviously a, a topic that uh, we love dearly. Yes. Um, so I guess, you know what, I'll start with, I'm you, going to start with my bench. Yeah, you just made a bench. What did you I throw on there? I just made a bench. I put a cast iron uh, front vise on, and that's all I have. The inner jaw is buried in the front apron of the bench top. Which is key. Yes. Yeah, so I've got a big, long inner jaw, basically. Now, did um, you, did you uh, is your jaw set into the front of the apron, or is the apron set over the jaw? The apron is set over the jaw, so okay. the jaw is totally hidden, and then... I realized that I really just didn't need an end vise because let's say I'm uh, edge jointing a long board. Well, I can slap one end of that long board into my vise, and then the other end for support, I've got dog holes drilled into the front apron all along the front apron of my uh, bench top, so I can pop a couple dog hole dogs in there, and then that's support for the rest of it, and right. boom, it's it's supported. Or if I've got a smaller piece, like let's say it's a drawer side or something that I'm planing the face of. Um, I have a dog hole that's directly in line with a little dog that pops up in out of the face vise, the outer jaw. Mm-hmm. And then there's a dog hole on the other end, like, you know, 20 inches out from the vise. From the vise that I can use to pinch it there. So I, I just, I don't really need an end vise. So that's it. It's all mm-hmm. I've got. And I'm very happy so far. Um, okay. So that's me. Yes. Well, I've got an end vise on my bench. It's very similar to your bench. I have the cast iron front vise. I have a cast iron vise on the end. I've probably had that bench for, let's say, 12 years, and I've used the end vise three times. Yeah. Wow. So, probably, I'm being generous at three. I can remember <laughs> two, and I'll say I'll use it at least one more time than that. Yeah, I don't use an end vise. It's like yeah. you said, you have a bench stop. Yeah. Which end handles- vices are problematic. I mean, you know, what are the, mostly what they're used for. Uh, is to pinch a board on the bench top for face planing. Which, if it's. can be troublesome. Because uh, narrow boards will get pinched up. Right. And they'll flex up. And then it makes it much harder to hand plane. Planing a bowed board. Right. right. What's even worse is once you flip it over and it's in the uh, concave side, is up, and then it sort of gets pinched down. Yeah. And you can never get that thing flat right. and you're just planing the ends. Yeah. And th- th- there are issues with, uh, in particular, tail vices that, 
it just seems like those stupid dogs are never in the right place, and you got to crank that right. thing out too far, yeah. or you got to put some kind of spacer in there. And what I do instead of a tail vise on my bench is I use planing stops yeah. of yeah. various design and just hand plane against the stops, and the board doesn't move. And what the other advantage of that is you're done with this face, quickly flip it over. You don't have to undo a vise or anything. So I only like Ed. I only have one vice on mine, and that's a front vice. Yeah, you have the you have the um, Lee Valley Twin Screw. Yeah, I have a Veritas Twin Screw vice on mine, which I like uh, because it's a great joinery vice. You can get the board between the two screws. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, and I use it, so it's perfect for that. I don't. Occasionally, I'll put something on edge in the vice and edge plane it. Uh, all my face planing gets done on the top of the bench against stops of one sort or another. Uh, so I just have that one face vise. And uh, I mean, I guess if going back to the tail vise, if I were going to put a tail vise in, I would put in uh, a vise that I saw a long time ago in Scott Landis's book, The Workbench Book, mm-hmm. which is actually the first place I ever saw a chain-driven twin-screw vise was also in Scott Landis's book. Right. That had the, a Rubo bench in there as well, I think. Yep, it had a Rubo bench in there. Uh, but I would use a wagon vise. This dude had a homemade wagon vise, is what they call it. And uh, it's so... Basically, it's a moving bench dog, in essence. It's a moving bench dog, yeah. yeah. And that thing is pretty awesome. and It doesn't sag... Uh, and because it has infinite adjustability, you don't have to worry about the dog not being in the right place like you do when you have a, you know, the dog is locked into one location on the tail vise. Right. So I, uh, if I were to do a in vise, I think it would be a wagon vise. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, in okay. fact, we're doing an article with Jeff Miller who's installing in both a wagon vise. He's throwing a leg vise. He loves the leg vise. I trust Jeff. Teaches woodworking school. Great woodworker. I don't get the leg vise. I just... It's this skinny little jaw. The, the faces are never perfectly parallel to each other because of the pivot point on the bottom. It just seems like the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> How do you and, really feel about it, Mike? <laughs> and uh, Howard, the, the vice I'm absolutely in love with, um, and it's one that I want to stick on my next uh, bench the, whenever I win the lottery, and that's the Lee Nielsen twin screw vice. An excellent vice, yeah. Um, they've got one at... Connecticut Valley School of Woodworking, and I use that bench whenever I'm teaching up there. And I've unfortunately, you know, I've gotten spoiled whenever I use that. Same thing as a twin screw, meaning there's a good at least 12 inches between those. So when you put a piece of stock in and clamp it, the jaws close nice and parallel. On my cast iron vise at home and the type that Ed has, if you're pinching to one side or the other, the vise tends to rack. So I always have a scrap of wood and a little spring clamp opposite that to to keep things nice and square, but um, and it's fine. I live with it, and I'll continue to live with it, but, boy, once you use a twin-screw vice, you really get spoiled. Yeah, yeah. I, I was involved with the uh, tool test we did on face vices, yeah. and I also did the review of the Lee Nielsen uh, twin-screw vice, and the Lee Nielsen is really, really nice. There was, there was an interesting little um, sort of pseudo-vice at the IWF show in Atlanta this week that was... It was very similar to a technique that our former shop manager, John White, uh, used to employ using um, pipe clamps for all sorts of clamping techniques right. on workbenches. And so this is basically, it's functioning sort of like an end vise. Um, it's, it's a pipe clamp. It's a glorified pipe clamp that comes out the end of your bench, which I thought was kind of neat. Yeah, um, the newfangled workbench. Incorporates that type yeah, of John's workbench, yeah. technology. Um, and again, to your points, I, I don't know that I really need an envice, but I think if I were going to get one, I, that's probably all I would do. I don't think I'd invest three hundred dollars in a fancy. Yes. You know. Yeah, I mean that. I looked at. I have not seen that vice in person. I've seen a photograph. It's in the blogs, it. If anybody wants to look it up, I, and I saw the mechanics of how it works. What they've done is pretty clever in terms yeah. of. Uh, but uh, again, yeah, it's not for me an envice. It, it, just not for me. But it is a cool little thing. Yeah. Um, well, let's, uh, let's move on to another question. And this one comes from Barry Daniel. And Barry wrote in to fill us in on his experience taking woodworking classes. And um, he wants to ask us, and I quote, How important is formal instruction versus informal learned on your own? 
I know a bunch of your authors and readers have gone to North Bennett Street School, uh, Rhode, Island, Rhode Island School of Design, and other formal schools. I'm just curious as to your own thoughts on the subject of formal woodworking education. So, I yeah. put it to, let's put it to Mike first, because he has uh, some formal education in woodworking. That's a great, great question. Um, I uh, studied furniture making in college, so I guess I have a formal education in woodworking. Um, and it, it does, it is a good thing. I learned, you know, the basics start, you know, surfacing lumber and, and, and on and on and, and, and through that. I, I would say that um, do you need a formal education to be a good work, woodworker? Absolutely not. I'd say in the early days of Fine Woodworking Magazine, our most prominent authors were probably all self-taught woodworkers for the most part. Oh, Tay Fred, really? Well, I'm talking, you know, not to, uh, not Tay Fred, but no. Actually, he was an instructor. Well, he was no. He came through the Europe. old school, yeah. you know, a guild system and everything. But a lot of American, uh, yes. guys, right, right, were self-taught. Um, so you can do great work. I would say just the learning curve is probably faster at a school. Um, you know, honestly, and not just saying this because a member of the staff at Fine Woodworking, but man, get yourself an online subscription and just take a look at the, the back issues of Fine Woodworking. I mean, there's absolutely, actually, there's more than what you really need to know to be a, a good woodworker. I think the biggest problem about just doing something like that is getting the context for the information. You'll read 17 different ways to cut a dovetail, and you say, man, which one do I even start mm -hmm. with? You go to a school like North Bennett or College of the Redwoods or Peter Korn School, um, and you're going to get a take, one professional's opinion, and you're going to learn a way to woodwork, and I think that's really valuable. But um, the downside to that is you're going to learn one way, and if you're coming into it cold with no other experience, you know, you might go away thinking that is the way to work. And as you know, Matt, the longer you are at this magazine, then there's just no such thing as the right way to do anything. Right. Yeah. And I would, I, I mean, my take would be, first of all, that I don't know if you should go to a formal school, but you should definitely go to the Connecticut Valley School of Woodworking the weekend of September 28th and 29th and <laughs> <laughs> take a class there. Um, I did not have any quote-unquote formal training. I mean, I did a lot of woodworking on my own until I had this happenstance meeting where a student, that the second time she was in a class with me, you know, said, you know, you talk a lot about woodworking, but you're a professional philosopher. My dad is a professional furniture maker but thinks he's a philosopher. <laughs> you know, do you want to meet him? So I met this guy and... He, the, the, he let me come into a shop and use a shop as much as I wanted to. And for me, the biggest thing was, sure, Joe uh, taught me a lot about making furniture. But more importantly, it was just that I got to make furniture. That I was actually in no, the shop a lot. You got to do something as yes. opposed to your philosophy degree. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I would think that would be the big advantage of actually going to somewhere like College of the Redwoods or North Bennett Street is that you're in the shop every day building. Yes. Yeah. That's the, the thing. Access to it. Whereas if you're trying to do it on your own at home in the, in the garage, you, honestly, you're not getting out there every day. And it's really the way to become a better woodworker is to build furniture. Yes. That's why when I, uh, I ran in college, collegiate, you know, for my college team, and I ran afterwards as well, and some people would always, they would all, you'd always be asked, how do, you, how do you become a better runner? And the answer is simply run. Yeah. It would be run. And the way to become a better furniture maker is to build, and build, and build, and build, and build. And that's what my friend Joe afforded me was the chance to have a shop with a big joiner, <clears throat> you know, everything I needed, and I could just right. go. right. You know, so yeah. I mean, that's a, a good reason to, and maybe not doing the whole hog two-year North Bennett program or something like that, but doing a week-long class or a weekend class. Something about taking a class in a school environment is that typically you're working in a well-lit, well, you know, air-conditioned or heated space with good tools mm -hmm. and good equipment. And the biggest learning curve, if you're just starting on your own, is if you're in a in a basement with six-foot ceilings, and you got an old contractor saw, and nothing is square or lined up, and you got yeah. a couple tools, man, that's a hard starting point. So yes. sometimes, you know, maybe it's not a two-year or a six-month program. Maybe it's a week-long program to learn some fundamentals, or a weekend program to learn how to sharpen your hand plane, or learn about veneering, or 
you know, maybe it's it's spot classes here and there. Okay. Yeah, this is this what the point you just made kind of brings up something that I often get a little uh, peeved about when I see it online. There's guys who you know they'll, someone want to come on and ask about a tool, like what tool should I get for this or that, and you always get this dismissive guy that says it's not the tools, it's the it's the craftsman. Yeah. yeah. In a way, that's true, right? You know, that a good craftsman can uh, use any, just about any tool and do something. But the difference is it's got to be a good tool. Tools really do matter. Yes. You've got to have, it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be new, but it's got to be good. And if you are always struggling in a, in a poorly lit shop with bad tools, it's just going to be so much harder to become a good furniture maker because you're always struggling against that. What you want as a shop and tools that don't get in the way. Right. That let you simply work. Right. So that you don't have to think about the tool. You get to think about building and designing. So I always get really annoyed because tools do matter. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it's like all of our project articles, we, we never go into milling the stock. You always start with square, flat stock as mm-hmm. a matter of course. Right. But as you know... It takes a long time in a lot of a big investment in good quality equipment that's well-maintained and set up correctly to get a flat square board. And if you're starting with pre-surface lumber from the lumber yard or Home Depot or something and there's bows and cups and twists and that's your starting point, it just makes that whole learning curve, like you said, that much longer, that much more frustrating. Right, so. right. Yeah, I would never let someone mill my <coughs> stock for me. There's so much right. that goes into milling stock that... that you think about when you're milling the stock, like this is I can use that board in this direction, or if I grant, you know, do this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, you really get to know your lumber. I mean, right. you're picking it out at the lumber yard. You'll notice some grain patterns, you defects. Then when you start milling it, the first time you run it across the joiner, it's like, oh, that's where that little turnaround is right there, and mm-hmm. and then uh, and then that sort of informs how you use that that board and where you put it and how you treat that all the right. way down the line. All right. Well, let's uh, move into our second segment of the day, and that's going to be all-time favorite tool of all time for this week. And uh, let's start with you, Matthew. What's your all-time favorite tool of all time this week? Well, I'm really going to sound like a real jerk, because last time it was my brand-new Lee Nielsen miter plane. Cha-ching. Cha-ching. This time, and it's it's not even in my possession yet, but it should be delivered tomorrow, is my brand new... 19-inch bandsaw is Um, going to kick tail. It is going to be awesome. There's a bit of a theme going on here. Do we need to check your... uh, Yeah, there's definitely uh, a bit of a theme going on here. Right, I just said tools matter, and now I'm bragging about my new 19-inch bandsaw. (laughs) Bringing back the sound effects. So this actually (laughs) really gets to the point of why you should take classes, because the people that teach them need to buy tools. (laughs) That's where all my tool money comes from teaching. So uh, you need to take classes. Uh, Yeah, I'm really excited. I cannot wait. I've got a a nice 14-inch bandsaw at home which I prefer to have just the 6-inch resaw capacity with it. Uh, And it does great work, and it's wonderful bandsaw. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm going to keep it. Oh, so now you have two bandsaws. Now I have two bandsaws. Uh, Why do you need two bandsaws? Why do you need 23 hand planes? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because they don't cost as much as two bandsaws. So the the 19-inch bandsaw, of course, I'm going to have to set up for resawing and set up for ripping. And I do some joinery on the bandsaw. So I'll have a nice wide blade on there, perfect for bandsaw. And the smaller one, I'll have set up for curves. So I'll probably put a 3 8 or a quarter inch blade on that. And that'll do all my curve stuff. And my friend Joe, the one that taught me to make furniture, one of the things he also taught me was never sell your tools. Because you'll never be able to buy another one for the price you sold it for. Hmm. So it's, you know... Uh, now, given a, if I were to get a new table saw, I would most likely... It's not likely true. S- Just sell it to me. It's all good. <laughs> yeah. You won't you don't need it. I'll sell you my uh, 14-inch for $1,200. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's my favorite tool of all time this week, and I don't even have it in my possession yet, wow. but I cannot wait. <laughs> uh, what is it? Out of curiosity. Uh, it's the uh, Grizzly 19-inch bandsaw with motor brake. It's the one that it won best overall. And the recent, uh, what was that article called? Uh, Step up to a big bandsaw or right. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
So that was the one that uh, was best overall. That's one of the really gloatable things that, about working here is that we do get exposed. To, we see all the tools. Yeah. In person. So and side by side, side right, by side, right next to each other, and, yeah. And not only that, you know, I can call Raleigh Johnson or, or Roland Johnson. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, call Raleigh. Raleigh did that test, yes. And so, you know, I can call Raleigh and talk to him and say, hey, you know, X, Y, and Z, tell me about this or that or the other thing. And I know that the average person, we can send emails to Raleigh and you can ask him whatever questions you want. Actually, to. everybody can call Raleigh. Call Raleigh. Raleigh. Give him a call. Raleigh loves to talk on the phone. (laughs) Raleigh actually does let us give his email out. He'll answer emails that are sent directly to him. He's a super kind person. He's he's great. Well, the three people that are listening to this podcast can certainly go ahead. (laughs) Let me give you his home address. Yes. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, that yours kind of plays into mine, which is a 37-inch table saw that I just bought. Uh, wow, yeah. sounds nice. Yeah, it's pretty nice. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah. It's, 37 uh, inches, huh? Yeah, it's called the TurboSaw 6000. <laughs> right. Where do you get a blade for that? Pretty awesome. It's uh, specialized, Matt. Specialized. Specialized. Um, you more newbies might not be familiar with this type of technology. but Yeah. Uh, so It's basically a sawmill. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, um, so, uh, Mike, don't, by the way, don't go looking for a 37-inch table saw. It just doesn't make sense. 36 Possibly 38, but not a 37, because that's an odd no. number. Yeah, yeah, that model had some issues. Yeah. Um, Mike, what's yours? Yours must be some really fancy tool to compete yeah, with. Yeah, favorite tool of all time, of all time, not just this week, I think, is the five minute jig. It consists, is that a dance that you learned <laughs> in Ireland? Typically consists of a, a, a scrap piece of plywood or MDF combined with three drywall screws and a piece of hardwood cut off from my uh, firewood pile. Or cleat or... Yes, yeah. and it takes five minutes to make, and it does one job perfectly, superbly well, and then after it's done, it goes back into the scrap bin. So you're, but it's not a specific job. You mean whatever the task you have, make yes. that five-minute jig. Yes, it's the art of the five-minute jig. I was just um, actually been making some cutting boards, and uh, one rectangular rectangular cutting. I know it. Rectangular <laughs> cutting board. I, I wanted to cut uh, some uh, curved edges on the ends of the board. It's a perfect arc. I got a bunch of these things. I wonder I, where you could have got the idea for that from. If I had just one. Um, I would have just drawn it on, knocked it out. But yeah. I had like 10 of these things. Yep. So that was enough to figure it out. Piece of plywood on my bandsaw, drywall screw is a pivot point, a hardwood thing is a little fence, and I was zipping out arcs. Oh, look at you. And then I was doing another 10 cutting boards that were perfect circles. Second drywall screw, like same jig. This would be a cheese board. Yes, yes. for your cheese nice wheels. Nice <laughs> two-year aged cheddar. That's right. Oh, I'm going to go visit the yeah. local cheese monger today. Yeah, yes, Ooh. we'll go down into the basement and get a cheese wheel. <laughs> Look at me, I'm Mike. So one this thing. is a Rochambeau cheese. <laughs> Sorry. I, I like a good cheese. Yeah. Is there anything wrong with a good cheese? No, I love cheese. I find cheese has a bad after effect with me. Wow, yeah, that's too bad. Having sit next to Ed for <laughs> three or four years now, I can uh, I can affirm that. All right, all right. The five-minute jig. The five-minute, that should but be its own TV show. This, but this runs counter to a lot of what I've read in certain woodworking magazines. Hmm. What? That you don't make five-minute jigs, that you make jigs to last. Oh, Heat track and star knobs and well, I, I, mean, it's, and, yeah. I think there was a, an article in Fine Woodworking mm-hmm. about making jigs to last. Well, it's I don't all recall subjective. that article. It depends upon you know. I think it. Well, I, we can talk later about it. Was Gary, Gary Rogowski? I think it was a right? Gary, oh, Gary yeah. article. No, I know there are, there are different things. And actually, you know what? I, I've sort of gone over to the other side of the fence a little bit now that I'm teaching, and it used to be. You know, my typical approach to woodworking, I've got a task to do, you bang a jig together, you get it done, and you move on from there. And then when you're teaching and you need to get 10 or 12 students through a certain process as quickly and as efficiently as possible, then you actually spend a few times and actually make a prototype 
for a jig and then you invest in the star knobs and those cool blue T-tracks and all that good kind of stuff and the Disteco clamps and the hold downs and you make it bomb proof so everyone can get through it and then you're done with the class and then I got this really, really? nice jig that I drill a hole and hang it on my wall and I'm really happy to have. So I think there's something to be said for, for both types. What you really want is the perfect combination, the five minute kick-ass jig. Yeah. You know, there's, <laughs> I know who does that. Michael Fortune. Oh yeah, he's the master. The I mean, jig he meister. can make a awesome, <clears throat> t all the problems are solved, everything is perfect, it's beautiful, and it's, he made it in five minutes. Oh yeah. And but he's some kind of bastard. Canadian wizard. Oh, but just as an art director for a magazine, I absolutely, Michael Fortune is the bane of my existence because <laughs> he'll do a very simple article, but he'll have this brilliant jig for 17 steps in the process. And they're all great. They're mm -hmm. all genius. But now I have to spend Tons scads of money. of money on illustrations right. and 10 pages to cover all 17 jigs in an article. So his, yeah. you know, when I see Michael coming, it's like I take the day off and have someone else lay out that article. And he's, it, for the, it's kind of the same for me working with Michael because it's like, holy cow, how many illustrations do I have to produce of these, you know, all these jigs, rough illustrations that, yes. they get, that are I references. I have the same problem with Tim Rousseau for that Asian hall table oh, the, uh, video the, workshop. The, the simplest so table at first glance. But, yeah. It is oh really God. hard. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let, let's go on to the Next question, and um, I actually have two from the same person, and uh, these come from our friend Manuel and uh, from Mexico, who was at FW Live, who we all met. Yeah. And Manuel has the coolest name ever. If you anglicize his last name, it's Manuel Chaos. How do you say awesome. his name uh, without anglicizing? The CH. I have rarely. I don't know that I've ever encountered a name with a CH uh, in. Spanish at the beginning. I don't know technically. I'd have to ask my mom mm -hmm. on that one. I'm not positive, and I don't want to butcher his name. Um, but Manu anyhow, Manuel Chaos sounds like a great re professional wrestling name. Ooh, or or a punk band. If you if you change it from Manuel to Manuel, Manuel Chaos. Manuel Chaos. That's getting a little dirty, Ed. That'd be awesome. <laughs> Let's keep it. I'm going right over that, man. <laughs> right. um, but anyhow, he Manuel had originally uh, written in concerning the construction of sliding wooden windows, but that's kind of you know, and I thought about it myself for a while too, but I've never done it before, and it's more of a home building question, so I don't want to steer them in the wrong direction. So, we're going to focus on some of his other questions, and the first one was um, to Mike. It was uh, I had asked you during Final Working Live whether it was possible to substitute Tormac honing compound with car polish. You hadn't ever tried it, but apparently Manuel did. And it does the trick. He regularly uses turtle wax polishing compound. He, or I'm sorry, he uses regular turtle wax polishing compound. Um, it's a bit slower than Tormac honing compound, but you do get to the same mirror finish on edges and backs of tools. The leather wheel on his machine seems to accept the compound just as well as the Tormac product. And hey, guess what? It's a heck of a lot cheaper. Now, um, he's talking about using this on chisels and I assume maybe plain irons or something. Um, to get this mirror polish, but hopefully there's not. A, there, well, there's a caveat here. Like, why are you doing this on on, on plain irons and chisels? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, Tormac's a great machine. I use it for doing all my hollow grinds on all my tools. You got two wheels. You got that that wet wheel, basically a giant water stone um, soaking in water, and then on the other side, you got this green leather wheel. That thing, unless you're a carver and you're honing carving gouges and stuff, you should probably just take that off, leave it alone, don't touch it. You certainly don't want to take your, your chisels or your plain irons to any sort of honing wheel, leather strop. I, I know it's a shortcut to get a sharp edge if you're having problems, but it leads to a lot of problems and it, it, it makes it difficult to get sharp again and it also limits the function of the tools like chisels. You never want to round over the back. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is in essence what you're doing when you're using any sort of a honing wheel. So that said, I'm glad he found out that the turtle wax works works well. If but, he's uh, using it for gouges. Sure. Right. Can you use it for turning tools, Mike? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not a turner. I know some guys go right from a grinder or a sandy belt to the tool. I know that other people who sharpen their tools. Peter Galbert uses um, water stones and oil stones. He sharpens his tools exactly the same way that you would... Uh, 
sharpened chisels and plane irons, and mm -hmm. I know other turners who do go through the whole honing thing. So, wow. um, Talk it, about that, patience. that's all over the map. Yeah. So, so, in a nutshell, this whole leather wheel thing is more appropriate for carving tools. Right. The main difference there is when you use a carving <clears throat> gouge and such, is you can control the angle of the tool until you get it to cut the way you want it to cut. Whereas a plane iron or chisel, chisel you need it dead flat on the back because you're often paring or chopping against a fence and a plane iron. Um, you definitely need those those two surfaces to be dead flat. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, just for you, Manuel, please tire la rueda de piel en la basura. That means throw the leather wheel into the garbage in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another one from Manuel, and this is, uh, again, concerning uh, the Tormek uh, sharpening system. He says, the Tormek handbook that comes with the T7 sharpening system states that a micro bevel on wood chisels has the disadvantage of reducing the support of the large original bevel to control the cutting in the wood. He's talking about the support of the chip that's coming off, I guess, as you pass the tool over the wood. Um, uh, do you believe this to be true? I find grinding a micro bevel fast and convenient. Now, before you answer this question, I just wanted to point out Manuel, you read the instruction manual? <laughs> right. Like, wow, this is like the guy who buys his first new car. And, it, which, and I'm guilty of this because I bought my first new car only a couple years ago, and I did read every page. single page in the, in wow. the manual. Yeah, I didn't do that. I'll never do it again, <clears throat> but I was so incredibly happy that I'd gotten this awesome, cool new toy that I read every page in the manual. I don't think I've read, ever read an instruction manual. Explains a lot, Matt. <laughs> it does. Explains so, why all my kids are messed up. So they're <laughs> saying, so basically Tormac is saying in their, in their <clears throat> manual that you don't really need a, a micro bevel on your tools, and it might not offer as much support for the, you know, the, the wood being peeled off your workpiece hmm. as would a consistent bevel. There's some uh, some some weird stuff going on here because uh, I mean I think the big advantage of a micro bevel, uh, Mike, you might agree with me, is that uh, <clears throat> by which I suggest and you better agree with me. No, uh, that the big advantage of a micro bevel is that. <clears throat> it takes far less time to hone the cutting edge than if you try to hone the entire primary bevel. Right. I mean, that's the big advantage of it. And it's not necessarily an issue of getting support behind the cutting edge. I mean, people do talk about that, but uh, it's really an issue of speed for honing. And if you are <clears throat> hollow grinding, in essence, you've already created the micro bevel because the hollow grind creates those two points of that you can then contact, put contact yeah. to put on the on the uh, stone. You have a contact then at the beginning of the cutting edge, and then at right. the at the back, at the of, back of the bevel. Yeah, and so you're already it's going to be there's so little material touching the water stone at that point that you're going to hone the cutting edge really fast. Right. Yep. So you wouldn't need a micro bevel on a cut on a on a, on a uh, hollow ground chisel, for example, or plane blade. Am I thinking about that right? Well, yeah. I mean, if we just want to sort of stick to micro or, or secondary bevels, and even if you are using a honing guide, then you are typically honing at a slightly higher angle than you grind. And the whole idea yes. of that primary grind is to just sort of waste away the majority of the material so you're just polishing just a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the only place, the only time I've heard where that secondary bevel can uh, be a bad thing. It's on Japanese chisels where they're basically um, made from two layers of steel. The cutting edge, it's a very thin, very hard layer of steel backed by a softer layer of steel. And the idea there is if you have a hollow grinder secondary bevel, that that softer steel is used to back up that brittle edge. And if there's a hollow grind there, it's not there to support that edge. Mm. So that's the only place I've heard, and I typically practice on my Japanese chisels, they do have one consistent flat there. Right. For when I'm, um, yeah. So they do take, um, I'm, I'm polishing a lot more whenever you sharpen them, but the, the, uh, the cutting edge is so hard that I find that they stay pretty sharp anyway. So I mean, another reason for a micro bevel that's at a higher degree than the primary bevel. Micro bevel in Mexico. Uh, micro bevel. Yeah. I like that. I'm going to name my next kid Micro, micro. Bevel. Uh, is that higher uh, cutting angles uh, have better blade, uh, edge retention. Uh, they're supposed to be, they're stronger uh, and they don't break down sure. as quickly. So if you're doing a hollow grind 
and you want to improve the edge retention, then you just do the hollow grind at a steeper angle. So instead of doing it at 25, you could do it at 30, and then you just you know go ahead and, and don't do a micro bevel, just hone then, and you would get the advantages of uh, a, of a secondary bevel in terms of or micro, uh, secondary bevel in terms of edge retention. Right, and I'd say even there, if I was honing by hand, meaning that that hollow ground edge of the chisel was laying on the stone then you're right, that hollow grind dictates the angle that yes. you're going to chisel. If I have a honing guide, I wouldn't even bother grinding at a steeper angle. I would just set that honing guide up to a steeper angle and have that secondary bevel um, at whatever angle I wanted it to be at. I mm -hmm. think. <clears throat> so again, there's no. It, it goes back to what you were saying earlier. There's no one perfect way to do anything in woodworking. There's multiple no. ways. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. There's a lot of bad ways to do things. Too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, well, that doesn't mean every way is good. Yeah. Before I go into wrapping up uh, this episode, I wanted to let folks know that um, you know, as we continue doing these podcasts, this is now number fourteen. Um, we keep sort of trying to improve all the technical aspects. So, I actually just um, you know, for folks who don't know, we use um, lapel mics that we normally use for our videos. Um, for this podcast is what we're using, and they're not really suited so much for podcasting. So I finally bit the bullet and decided to uh, fork out my Amex, corporate Amex card and get us some uh, tabletop, really nice tabletop mics. So hopefully, maybe by the next podcast, we're gonna have some sweet yeah. mics. These are okay, but sometimes I get a little echoey action with my mic in particular. I've been noticing the last couple episodes. So what's the uh, what's the number <laughs> on an Amex card? Uh, 555-1212. <laughs> um, but anyhow, um, now we get uh, to roll out this episode. You know, we, as I always say, we get a lot of comments on our page in the iTunes store, and every week I like to read a few um, as a hat tip to those folks who leave us kind comments and sometimes even not so kind. Um, so let's start off with ShopDog48, who wrote in, Talk about a steep learning curve from the first episode with annoying sound effects which briefly came back in this episode, um, competing with the noisy shop and the hosts trying to get points across, to now a great production with interesting topics and look, Ma, no sound effects, almost. Would it, would great it job, be, guys. Would it yes. be bad form of us to also add a feature where we make fun of people's online names? Uh, Seems to already be a regular feature. <laughs> we do every once in a while as we make fun of our own names sometimes. Yes. Um, yeah. Why? What would you say about ShopDog48? About that choice of name, uh, I I don't know if what I would, I would you have to pronounce it Shop Dog Forty Eight. Okay, ready? Let me try this again. Yeah, from Shop Dog Forty Eight. Yeah, all right. Um, from John Thompson, pretty good show. Really enjoy the new song. That's an obvious reference to our excerpt of Nick Offerman's uh, song on the August Seventeenth <laughs> episode number thirteen. And from I'm trying to figure out how to actually say this correctly. From Lisa Money Sign. Or we'll just say from Lisa Money. She uses the little S with the Lisa Money asterisk. So we'll just say from Lisa Money. I listened to my very first podcast of your show. Thank you for your work. What a great resource for someone like me who loves design and wants to learn how to make furniture. You have the potential to have a huge following of contemporary design people. I hope you'll explore the possibilities. I love the references to Danish modern and Shaker furniture recently. Thanks again for your work. And that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on September 14th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com and you can catch the podcast uh, via iTunes or stream it on your computer at finewoodworking.com slash blogs. Just click on the link to Shop Talk Live on the right-hand side of the page. <laughs>